You know what? Another interesting fact about the Christmas Story movie. Have you seen the movie Elf? Yes. And you know the part where Will Ferrell's character is trying to make etch and sketch and all those things and he's not very good at mm-hmm. it? The workman, the foreman who comes up to him all like grumpy and angry mm-hmm. that he's not keeping up with the quota okay. is the kid from Christmas Story. It's the actor that was no the kid way. in Christmas Story. Yeah. I did not know that. You see it in the eyes a little bit when you look at it, but I think he was included in the casting of the movie for the fact that he's in the iconic, you know, the Christmas story. Right. So he's just a normal dude. He just had the one big movie that everyone never did anything else, really. And he had the he has the the I guess the luxury of being famous, but no one recognizes him. Mm-hmm. So that's a tough thing that when you have a big splash, it's very hard to follow up. And the Stanley Harwas book, the War and the American Difference. He has a great essay in there about Martin Luther King, actually, saying that, that, that King, he was so influential early on. It was, it was almost, it was mm. hard to build that civil rights movement in a sense because the, what happened in Selma was so, such a watershed. It was, it was kind of hard yeah. to live up to that. It was sort of an interesting. Oh, I never even thought of that. It's just, uh, yeah, because he's like 26, 27 when all that happens. Yeah. Well, it's it's like sophomore slump. Yeah, the yeah. sophomore slump for musicians. You know, they don't want to, if the second album is not as good. Right. Or with Mumford & Sons, the third album is horrible. I um, haven't heard the third album. Bad, huh? Well, uh, well, they tried to do the U2 thing and go all electric. Oh, gosh. You know, and they, they at first said that the heat, they were kind of cursing the banjo and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. There was a bit of a, of a retraction where now they're saying... No, 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 we're not saying that. We're just saying for now, our sound is entirely different. But it's it's just, it's like when U2 went from kind of more the, the crooning songs of the early days, the real kind of epic poem things mm-hmm. to, you know, Zuropa. Mm-hmm. But in that case, it was you could t- still tell it was U2. Mm-hmm. This, you, you hear their third album, and you can't even tell it's the same band with Mumford. You, you can kind of tell the same voice, but I don't know, it... I think people, some people gave it higher ratings than they probably should have just because it was Mumford. But, right. But not that Mumford is like <laughs> MLK. I mean, that, that was probably the worst analogy ever. No, no, I, th- I think that stands. It is if, when you do something that's a watershed, be it pop culture or a, a movement, uh, I think part of it is also when you're young, if, if you do it older. But I guess like David Bowie would be someone who consistent was able to continue to build and maybe he he didn't have a watershed at the beginning. Maybe maybe that's yeah. part of it. But when you when when you hit the zeitgeist, uh, then it's really hard to follow up with that. No, that's true about Bowie. I think I mean the iconic bands that like in my memory. I did a lot of rock history when I was younger because mm-hmm. I was into music a lot more. I would say there is no Bowie like moment. You're right. Mm-hmm. There's no like. David Bowie, ruined, you know, he sort of runs the world. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't like emerge. He just kind of kept making very, very good music over a longer period of time. So I don't know if the pressure wasn't there or what, but I do know he he was very zealous about finding other people that were part of the zeitgeist or, or the, the next up and coming wave mm-hmm. and incorporating them. So with Bowie, there's it's usually forgotten, but because we usually only think of like the the red hair with no eyebrows thing, but. Classic. He he had a, at least one or two, maybe three albums with Stevie Ray Vaughan. I didn't know that. When when the Texas like blues thing was really kicking off, ZZ Top and all these guys were coming out. Mm-hmm. He has albums with him. That's crazy. Stevie's not on the cover or anything, but the entire sound is like this like crazy Texas blues with David Bowie, you know, kind of voice. And he just like, wow, that's that's an interesting pairing. Hmm. But he just kept finding those things along the way. That makes it tricky, no doubt, following up. It's funny. You mentioned Ralph Wood, the professor out of Baylor. And Wake Forest. And Wake Forest. Is he still is he still listed as a Wake Forest guy? No, I was just referencing my oh, past. Yeah. And- well, and so I think, what, what was his journey? Because he was at Sanford for like a hot minute, like one year, where I was there. So I took him as well. Okay. Which is what got me into Tolkien and fiction and other things. Hmm. Uh, I, or I rather, I was into the before quietly nerd in a nerd way um but he opened him up as topics for theological conversation was he at wake first then sanford and then off to baylor yes he grew up in east texas and had an influential high school teacher in english i believe and 
I'm not sure where, I forget where undergraduate was, but he was at the University of Chicago for his PhD. Yeah. Flannery O'Connor and that kind Flannery of Flannery O'Connor. And I believe he studied under um, Nathan Scott, Nathan Scott Jr., actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Who is an interesting, I don't know a lot about him. He died a few years ago and they had a memorial kind of remembering bit at AAR for him. So he, he was an influential person. He's one of the few people to edit a book on religion and tragedy. He had a book published mm. by like the YMCA. I guess, the, you know, they used to publish religious books, really? but it was, it's scholarly and uh, it's yeah. out of print, but I've got a copy. That's not the two you would have said. No, no, it's uh, very okay. surprising. Where'd you publish but, uh, YMCA? YMCA. Oh, well, cool. you may not have said YMCA. It was like the Young Men's Christian Association, but I, I yeah. assume it's part of the same movement. But it's fine. They must have uh, either stopped that or I've never heard of it before. Yeah. Because, you know. I could just imagine, you know, going to Christmas, my mother-in-law's. So, did you publish a book? Yeah. Who with? Um, it's with the YMCA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've actually got it right here because these are all the books that I'm supposed to be rereading that I'm not. So, The Tragic Vision and the Christian Faith, edited by Nathan A. Scott, Jr., Association Press. Oh. But it says the copyright is 1957 by the National Board of Young Men's Christian Association. Okay. But then it says Association Press, New York, New York. So that's why I said, I don't know. I just assumed it's somehow connected with the YMCA, but I don't know. Yeah, probably just an affiliate thing. But it is surprising. But he studied under him, so it's interesting because I never really studied tragedy with Ralph Wood. That was not his thing. He was really into comedy and the comic vision and Flannery O'Connor mm. and sort of a – uh, uh, eruption of joy in the midst of sadness, kind of that you you catastrophe of Tolkien. Yeah, and he'd read right. and he read Barth that way, and how Barth thought of Mozart. So that was really Ralph's interest, and is his interest. Uh, what what was he? What were the courses he was teaching when you were at Wake? He taught. Let's see here. Gosh, I, the name's on my lip. Uh, but it's, it's a famous class um, at Wake Forest. It's like uh, religion, religious imagination. Gosh. Okay. Yeah, because at Sanford, the one year he was there, it was called Faith and Fantasy. But that was just uh, Chesterton, okay. Tolkien, and Lewis. Right. So he had another one. He was stirring the work up. And with Beeson just across the quad uh, on Sanford's mm -hmm. campus, he was going to teach one there. I think it was on, actually, I think he was starting to work into what you were talking about. It was something like The Problem of Evil, so it was going to be Dostoevsky and a couple of those pieces. I, I, I foolishly didn't take that class because I said, well, you know, after having to read like 9,000 pages for him as an undergrad <laughs> for, for faith and fantasy, I said, well, I'll take a break and come back because certainly he's going to be here forever. And then he like announces his resignation because he's going to Baylor like three months later. It's funny that we have that connection, though. Mm -hmm. It is. Because that, that, that class really lit my fire in terms of religion and fiction and genre, too, comedy and tragedy. That got me really right. – I'm still, I'm still obsessed with that in a sense. Yeah, and he, and he goes off to Baylor, of course, and you know he writes the, the Gospel According to Tolkien book, mm -hmm. which I'm glad he did that because, I mean, if he had waited five more years with the movies coming out and things, you know, there's like a, a, a deluge of so many books, uh, particularly on Tolkien – also on Lewis, mm -hmm. but he he had he was doing it first, and not not the only one doing it first. But he was amongst those sort of first generation of folks doing it. So I'm glad he got that book out, mm -hmm. and it, it 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 rung true from some of his classes. Mm -hmm. I liked Wood his classes in particular, mainly because I don't think anyone had ever given me an idea of what that theology could be bigger than just uh, maybe the word is apologetics, that, than just sort of philosophical wrangling. With like, what is the meaning of this, or what is truth? That kind of a thing. I mean, I, I came into theological thinking and reflection and reading and stuff pretty late in life. I was basically a fresh or a senior in high school, right before I went off to college. And um, one of my first mentors was a guy about seven years older, who was really into like you know philosophical thinking, apologetics. He later became a lawyer, so he had that kind of cross-examining bent to him. And that's kind of always what I thought it was. I thought it was just really smart people always arguing. And what Wood kind of spun, sort of wove into me, you might say, was this idea that you look at fiction and you look at these books that people love so much. Why is it that they sometimes seem to ring more true than a really dense philosophical book that, you know, is the latest thing? Mm -hmm. 
not more true, but it seems there's some resonance there that's missing. That there's a time for reflection and argument, but there's something else that people like Lewis and Tolkien and other fiction writers are pointing to. That's 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 really what Ralph did for me. And what's interesting is then when you go back to the Bible, the Bible is mostly narrative. So it, it, it's that's right. It's, yeah, it's not. You know, and I bring this up in class a lot. It's not instruction manual. It's not IKEA. It'd be handy because a lot of people want to say, "Well, the Bible is an instruction manual to heaven." And so that's a perfect yeah. setup because then I'll say, oh, really? Well, let me just open it up here. And it's talking about Methuselah and the Canaanites. And tell me how that's an <laughs> instruction manual. You know, yeah. it's not. It's this big saga. It's this big story. And, and you've really got to enter this strange new world, as, as Bart would say, this this nonfiction saga. And uh, so and I, that's McIntyre after virtue. And, and that's a lot of people hmm. thinking uh, Sam Wells and others. I don't know if. Ralph is coming out of the same. I don't know. If, I don't know how well he knew McIntyre. I'm not sure yeah. if he's moving, making that movement independently, or he's picked up on that idea of. of in the Enlightenment, they thought of narrative as being false, as fairy tale, right. and now we've realized that that's just not true. So yeah, I agree that that Ralph really connected those dots. And for me, as I, I took, I think it was religion, or his faith in religious imagination, faith in Christian Im- imagination. And he, we did Shirley Guthrie as like a primer on theology. And then we read, I believe, Prince Caspian. And we read maybe The Fellowship of the Ring. And we read a Charles Williams book, I think, or that might have been another class, yeah. The Place of the Lion, something like that. Really straight. I remember reading it and being totally baffled. And uh, I'd yeah. love to go back. Williams always baffles me. I, I yeah. can't. So his fiction, it's, it's some people just find it fascinating and like marvelous. And I'm always like. I always find it a little more curious. It's like, what? Yeah, like, it's very, <laughs> at least along the way. It's very left field, isn't it? I feel like Charles is trying to wink, wink at the reader. Like, if only the good ones will get what I'm saying here. Right. Whereas other, like Lewis and Tolkien, they at least, they want it to be a little more obvious, mm-hmm. uh, hitching the gut kind of a way. He's very esoteric. And uh, yeah. now that I'm That's older, I think it. I would probably appreciate that. But it, when I was... 19, it just, it was very baffling. Um, Just tell me what it means, man. But you know what's curious is I read something about his, I think it's the novel I read, The Place of the Lion. It referenced a scene. And when I read that description of, it's like there's a lion at the top of the stairs, I had one of those jolting moments. And I thought, Mm. I kind of remember that bit. And it's been 20 years since I read it, 20 more than that. But uh, it's like when you see a picture and all of a sudden you recognize them, I thought, I remember. Now, maybe I'm wrong, false memories, but I thought that's pretty cool that he wrote a book that I can almost remember bits of from so long ago. That's always was the project for, you know, the the journey back to imagination. Hmm. I I, I can't really think of many nonfiction, let's say, historical theology books that, you know, I have those jolting moments. I mean, I I have a couple. It's, It's not impossible. I remember, uh, of all things, the first time I read uh, Alistair McGrath's uh, Reformation Thought, mm-hmm. one of his earlier sort of histories overall. And it wasn't so much that that impression now that you're talking about. It was more, oh, finally, someone's helping me actually grasp this. And, yeah, a sense of gratitude. Yeah, it, it was more this, oh, okay, this is actually theology in, in the historical narrative. Um, yeah, so it was more of a coming of age than it was... That deep impression, yeah. Whereas in Ralph Wood's class, when I had to reread Lord of the Rings, uh, I'd, actually, in my story, Lord of the Rings was actually the first book I ever read. Hmm. I had a sort of poor education background, just in a city that didn't really do much for it. Mm-hmm. So I was just a typical kid. I'd rather watch TV or do something else. So obviously I could read, but I never read for pleasure until I had to go to my grandmother's house and I had jaw surgery one summer. And I was like laid up mm-hmm. for three three weeks, you know, drinking milkshakes. And they had a copy of the Lord of the Rings, actually the Hobbit first, and then the Lord of the Rings sitting on the shelf. Wow. So I started reading it. So when I had to reread it, this must have been what eight nine years later. Yeah, it was like it, it, it was like I was sitting back in my grandmother's house. Mm-hmm. I could remember what place on the couch I was sitting when that that image was in my head. Wow. Yes. Yeah. I love that. I love that in those memories. Yeah. When you remember where you were reading something. And, and you're right that nonfiction doesn't ha- – I remember things that I've studied, but then you're into like schematics, that there's three points to yeah. or whatever, or the tulip 
acronym for Calvinism. And, and so you kind of can delve into it and it's, it's immensely helpful, but uh, it, it, it doesn't ring in the way that a narrative does when you read a story and, you're, and you think, wow, that's me, or I know somebody like that, or you know, I totally didn't see that coming. Um, yeah, I, I have this theory actually that over time, particularly in the last 100, 125 years, mm-hmm. What was formerly pedagogical tools have become replacements, rather, for the actual lived faith itself. So maybe in, say, 150 years ago, a Calvinist would talk about TULIP, but they knew a grander sweep of sort of Protestant history, overall Christian heritage, the biblical literacy, and they knew that TULIP was just a way of differentiating themselves from someone who was Arminian. Mm Mm-hmm. And that it had a historical purpose. In fact, it's actually historically true. Uh, no one actually talked about TULIP until the 20th century. Really? Um, Interesting. Well, think, yeah. Well, if you think, think about it, the Synod of Dort was in the Netherlands. Why would they use an <laughs> English word as the acronym? What? I, I go to Dort every summer. <laughs> well, maybe one day everyone will speak English. Let's use an English word. I, I always thought, joke with my students, though, the Dutch word for tulip is tulp. There's no I. Uh, so I was like, well, maybe they didn't believe in irresistible grace. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it, but it became a, a pedagogical tool. That's almost certainly why tulip got um, sort of injected into the conversation in the 20th century. But what happens is, is that the pedagogy becomes the replacement for yeah. the kind of more th- thicker experience of someone. Yeah, I like thicker experience, yes. People that knew scripture and and could get references to kind of obscure narratives, like they were part of a larger tradition. Yeah, I cannot find any evidence, for example. And uh, there's another book I was reading recently by an historian who tried to find the same, and he couldn't. Hmm. Um, there was no reference at all to people sort of boiling themselves down to, well, I'm five point this, I'm three point that, and that's just in the reformed world. In other traditions as well, you don't have this. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm actually curious. I don't know if it's a product of the Enlightenment, though the Enlightenment certainly drives it mm-hmm. sometimes. This this uh, boiling things down to their essence. Yeah. To, I need these these four doctrines. A, a universal type, stripped of context, a universal type. Yeah. All you need is these four ideas. Yeah, stripped of anything that's livable. You just have to like yeah. give assent to these things. I, I, it does feel like somehow the the rug pulled out from under that thick culture. And so all, some people were left. What were these pedagogies, mm-hmm. these, these, these slogans? And of course the, the internet ages maybe sped that up because we all click on you know, five easy, this, you know, four pictures of hilarious, this, mm-hmm. like we're always looking for the, mm-hmm. okay, I don't have time to read all this. Just give me the, the quick and simple and publish. And so it's only sped up. Right. And, and publishing too, because anyone that's going to write something on Reformation is going to look at the same books and say, oh, this is really useful. In fact, I'd read somewhere that, that, do you remember the bit in the sciences where they have the tongue and it's, it's, uh, diagrammed where like there's this side of your tongue is sour and this yeah. side is, yeah, yeah. that's totally bogus, but it's still, really? getting, yeah, like it, it's not true, but, uh, it got put in a book and it still appears in books printed today, but evidently there's no basis for it. But it's kind of this, ur- you know, this, this, uh, urban legend almost that it's so handy. You can see the guy writing a book and he's like, Oh, I should include this. Like this, this yeah, is a great right. diagram, but, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but that I'd read that somewhere. No. Uh, well, I, I remember as a kid trying to put salty on the salty part <laughs> of the tongue. I did. I was like, it tastes exactly the same. Right, right. I don't know what the problem. I think the receptor. I mean, there are different receptors. May and here I'm going to I'm going to get into know. areas I really know nothing about. But why stop now? Uh, we have receptors and and different ones. To, but but they're all over. There's not sections like there's not a garden of salt receptors on your tongue or something. Yeah, because it, it doesn't even pass the eyeball test. Because if you bit into something salty, you, like uh, two thirds of your tongue would be like, uh, okay. <laughs> like <a> numb. Right. Right. <laughs> But uh, actually, this, this, is, this is jogging something loose because Alistair McGrath, when he was, um, uh, uh, this is going to sound rude, but it's not, when he was doing his science thing for a while, mm-hmm. um, when he you know, had set aside Reformation stuff, he's, he's recently done the C.S. Lewis biography and some other stuff yes. in culture and apologetics. So, But he, he, he was doing his, his riffs on science and the faith, uh, and he had a whole bunch of books come out on yeah, that. Yeah, I remember that, about atheism and science. Yeah. And- Dawkins. My brother, you know, Josh, he, he has a doctor in that. So that's definitely his world. 
it's, it wasn't mine or, or ha- it's just been kind of a. Right. I thought he was church history. No, he wasn't. No, he did a history. Okay. He did his this doctorate was history. So in the sense that he did a near or chronological account of these problems between science and the faith. Cool. Okay. Uh, but he's more into, I would say, the philosophical underpinnings and how these things work. You, you know, the um, Helmut Tielicke's little book for young theologians. Vaguely. I recognize the name. I don't know that book. but And uh, Kelly Capick out of Covenant uh, just wrote a, something very similar with a sort of, I think, a newer title. But basically, you know, those little short primer books. My brother wrote a book. It's coming out with IVP called A Little Book for Young Scientists. Sort of a, a helpful guide for how to navigate the waters. Hmm. So it's just an interesting um, world that I keep an eye on. But it's, it's but So I wasn't really... I didn't read a lot of McGrath on that, but he, he gave a lecture in Orlando of all things. And I remember going to it and he actually had a bit on this uh, idea of models, he called it. Mm-hmm. And he just said, you know, describing matter as billiard balls that, that bounce around and bonk into each other. He said, he, he just had this, I mean, it was an hour lecture saying matter is not billiard balls. <laughs> <laughs> had this remember, going, oh, I know. I never thought they were. <laughs> Uh, but I, I, I think I get it now. What he was getting after is the permeable boundary between this is how we're going to describe it, and then that becomes it. Hmm. So I'm not sure if there's a, an analogy in the Wesleyan world um, where these are the, the four hallmarks or whatever, and then that becomes all we talk about. But in other traditions, it's very, very common. You know, actually, I hadn't thought of that till you just mentioned the Wesleyan tradition. But one of the things that comes up for Methodists is the Wesleyan quadrilateral. I don't know if you've heard that. People love it. And it all goes back to Albert Outler, who famously described it as Wesley's method. But the funny bit is Wesley never actually uses that phrase. And as I understand it, he never uses all four bits of the quadrilateral in one place. And then when you study Anglicanism, it's all just rooted in Anglicanism. So it's really kind of a bit of, you know, it's a bit of, of magic of, of, uh, yeah, yeah. of, you know, uh, sort of distraction because we, we seize on this methodology that makes us Wesleyan, but it's really not. It's really Anglican. And Wesley was never that method, methodological anyway. So uh, yeah, there is some of that of let's, let's create a, a, a what you call it? A method. And then, yeah. and then let's just talk about the method and ordinance in the Methodist United Methodist church have to answer a question about the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Yeah. It becomes a, a, a tick the box. It thing. does. It's like, okay, he said something about that. Okay. We're good. Yes. Yeah. Because that's Methodist. Even in American um, reform thinking. Mm-hmm. So there have been all types of pushes and comments and pushback, I should say, and comments about how at times, at least at a more popular level, it seems that all they can talk about is predestination. Well, then if you look at, go back and look at sort of the history of it in just America. I mean, if you get Jonathan Edwards' corpus of writings... I mean, it's it's like second to Augustine in terms of length. The stuff he wrote huh. on the the bread. I mean, he wrote on Isaac Newton and Lockean epistemology. He was after everything. Yeah, he wrote on sinners in the hands of an angry God and, and had some teachings on that that doctrine. Mm-hmm. But you get fast forward, and then you get like a standalone volume like Bettner's book on predestination mm-hmm. or Bettner on Roman Catholicism as well. And and it's it's it's. It's like the, the 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 atmosphere gets boiled off, mm-hmm. and the the world that a real heavy view of a particular doctrine for a one tradition in this case predestination mm-hmm. becomes all they talk about yes. sometimes, and it's it, no, it's not all they talk about it in the sense that that's all they care about, but it seems to be their go. They're like John Wayne; they got one bullet, and it's the predestination. Yeah, bullet. yeah, yeah. Or maybe in the quadrilateral sense, they have, well, just say the quadrilateral and we're good. And you're right. That may not be what mm-hmm. Wesley or Wesleyanism was as a culture living out before it became boiled down to just those four things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or when you say one bullet, also think of Barney Fife on uh, the Andy Griffith show. <laughs> it's in your pocket. Right. You know what? Should I, I got get, one bullet. <laughs> should I get my bullet out, Andy? Hang on. Hang on, Barney. I can't do a good Barney Fife, but... <laughs> Such a great show. <laughs> it was, why was it always in a pocket that was buttoned? Yeah. It, it made, like, you know, get one of those, like, belts that has the bullet, like, notch. Yeah. Like, or Chewbacca's bandolera. Is that what they call it? A bandolera or something or something, you know. It might be bandolera. That's, that, would, that wouldn't have come off the top of my head, but we'll go with it. Something like that. Anyway, yeah, that, that would be pretty awesome. 
But you know, Barney's just not very metal. Let's just be honest. He's not very heavy. No, metal. He, he's not. He's not metal. I, <laughs> just speaking of analogies, though, um, I'm writing a, a blog post. I don't think I'll post it uh, at any point. It's for another website. But it was sort of right around the times of we're running up to Christmas. And there's always the culture wars, which I wasn't going to get involved with. But I was writing on the paradox of the culture war. <laughs> and I had this analogy where I said, the culture warrior is like Elmer Fudd. You started the fight against the Wabbit. The Wabbit just ceaselessly mocks you for it. And you're still trying to shoot him. Like, it's just <laughs> yeah. like, oh, you Wabbit. Like, and just, you know, everyone's and he's just, yeah. he's just mocking you the whole time. And it was right when the whole red Starbucks cup thing right, came down. Right. I don't know if you saw that, which really didn't have anything to do with anything. And it turns out it was just a jumped up fake fight. But they, they do. It is yin and yang. They do need each other. You know, like if, 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 if he ever kills Bugs Bunny, the story's over. So they can't really the kill him. The story's over. Yeah. And if he's not ceaselessly mocked for his failures at every point, it, I mean, he doesn't even get close. Right. And that's, that's sometimes how this always ends up working out, where you're just going, you just you, you started this fight and you're being mocked while doing it. <laughs> um, but anyway, I just love uh, throwback. Next podcast, we'll come up with a, a throwback to the Jetsons and the Flintstones. Oh, boy. So. <laughs> Which, by the way, are on... Uh, uh, iTunes now. Really? My kids are watching the Flintstones, uh, of all things. Though I think I'm showing it to them a bit too early. They're like, I don't, I don't, they're like, Daddy, why is this funny? Yeah. You know, it's like, no, he, he doesn't have a horn. He pulls the bird's tail. <laughs> ah! And, and they're just like, they're like, oh, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> like a four-year-old doesn't get the need for an alarm. So right. he just doesn't get the need. Why the or the idea of factory work, like at five o'clock, he getting in the whistle uh, they they do love Dino uh, and Bam Bam and Pebbles. They think that's hilarious. Bam Bam and Pebbles is the best. I, I remember as a kid yeah. being, and this little kid could pick up someone and just kind of slam them around. It was it was really, yeah. That was Bam Bam, right? The kid, and then Pebbles. Yeah, yeah Bam Bam. Yeah, hence the name. A little Superman figure and could just. Well, and Pebbles just goes da 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 da. <laughs> like that's really all she says over and over again. Um, Suburbia. Oh yeah. That's well, funny. and uh, I didn't realize, I mean, I, I, again, talk about primal memories. Um, this stuff keeps popping back in my head as I'm watching it with him. Like the little green alien. Remember that? Uh, whatever his name was that showed up in the Flintstones. He was like from like. No. He was from like, I think, far <laughs> to the future or something. He had done something. It was basically the Thor story. He'd done something wrong. <laughs> Thor and he got banished. to, But he did get banished to like 21st century America. He got banished to Bedrock. Uh-huh. And so he, he walks around calling them dum-dums. Oh, dum-dum. And, huh. you know, he has all this, like, quasi-magical power. <laughs> well, they really just need a new plot line, didn't they? We'll bring in an alien. <laughs> the, the Simpsons makes fun of that every now and again. They're like, well, it's, it's getting a little dull around here. Might as well add it. I think Homer says it at one point. Uh, he says, we need to add another character. And the green alien actually. Oh, really? It's the same guy from the Flintstones. Oh, my god! And then it, it's like complete deadpan, and they just move on. They expect you to get it. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, of wacky old shows that kids are still might still watch, Alvin and the Chipmunks. They, my kids have been watching some of that one on Netflix. And there was one that I got kind of oddly engrossed in, and I caught the end of it. But it's like they were doing a play, but some of the characters were turning into werewolves in the middle of the play. <laughs> so you just got... Obviously. And there's like, you only got bits of the play, but like the dad's a werewolf. And I, and I had this weird thought of, <laughs> you know what would be really cool is to actually try to put on this play, like to perform the play. And, and it has, didn't have the chipmunks in it, but you know, the one guy's turning into a werewolf, but then it's kind of this soap yeah. opera thing. And so it's almost like this Buffy bit where it's supposed to be serious, but there's all this weird supernatural comedy too. And I thought this, that, you know, Manhattan might love this because it was just kind of surreal. It was really druggy surreal to have this play going on with people werewolves and then the chipmunks are running around too and oh and and the way they solve it because you got to you know resolve it the guy that bit the kid that turned him into a werewolf when he bit him back it reversed everything so that's how they got out of the whole plot <laughs> what? but it was just kind of like this is really amazing that yeah that seems like a lot of effort for a deus ex machina yeah. just, just like, <laughs> bite him back it's, but there's a beautiful logic to it you know yeah now it's just that just makes it freaky friday you just pass it back Though I, it, you're right, it would play in Manhattan, but I, I think it would play in Manhattan because I was at the uh, grocery store yesterday. You know how, every, how everything's become so and so plus zombies. Mm-hmm. So there was like Abraham Lincoln uh, zombie yes, slayer, yeah. whatever. Jane Austen. <laughs> I saw. I saw. Yeah, I saw the latest. It was. I think it was either since it was Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice. That's it. Uh, plus zombies. Yes. And I was just like, 
Uh, I might actually read that. That's just that part. <laughs> I think there's a movie. Is I there? Think they're that, do a movie. Be, I hope it's at least entertaining. I never saw the Abe Lincoln one, but I didn't either. Um, uh, but it's always very interesting. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know if you. I, I don't know what the impulse is behind this, other than people just really think zombies are cool. Mm-hmm. I wonder though, with your background in literature and theology, I wonder if you if you have any thoughts on this. I know. Did you ever see or hear of the movie Cowboys and Aliens? Yes, had Harrison Ford in it, right? Yeah, totally strange sound. I mean, it, even the trailer looks weird. It's cowboys and Native Americans, you know, doing their very uh, bloody things, mm-hmm. fighting each other, and then a group of aliens show show up and start kidnapping folk and all this kind of stuff. And the enemy of my enemy is my friend type thing. I I, did, I wanted to see it and did not see it. A bit it. of that, but I, I did I did some reading on because it, it was a, a graphic novel series for a while, uh-huh. um, and I had never read that. But I'm like, okay, the jump from graphic novel to movie doesn't just happen, and it was in a relatively obscure run. But I did some you know some more digging, and basically what the comment was is as, as a literary conceit. Most of the stories of the Wild West are of the cowboys basically being the aliens hostily taking over the land of the Native Americans, mm-hmm. treating them as strange people, attacking them, rounding them up, all that kind of stuff. And, it, and the, the, the author of the graphic novel, I think, basically said, I wonder what happened if the tables were turned and now the cowboys were the ones hmm. being chased and occupied and all they have. They're being wildly... Um, outpaced by technology, you know, the gunpowder and all those types of things. Um, just, the, just the sheer mechanized war that was coming from Europe mm-hmm. would, would mimic aliens coming that's into this world. Neat. So I was like, that's actually really kind of brilliant. Yeah. And I don't know if there's something like that with the zombie thing. Maybe there is. Maybe it just sells a lot of books. I have no idea. But mm-hmm. maybe there's something that it, it draws out of the... It, it doesn't... I mean, when you see Pride and Prejudice... If you're not into Victorian literature, you're going, eh, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure about that. But if, if you hear zombies, maybe they're, I don't know if it's pulling something out of the, the main themes. I have no idea. Yeah. But yeah, I, I know people are writing on this stuff. I've, um, I haven't read any of it, but in my own sort of random thoughts while watching The Walking Dead or something, it, um, it seems like it's a secular apocalypse that, that we, we it's, it's the end of the world. And the thing about the end of the world is it makes our lives meaningful. And so part of it, I wonder, is, is as we are more alienated from meaning because we're, we're bowling alone in that famous book where we're watching TV alone, people are dying alone in hospitals and in and, and their homes and people are in their backyards closed off uh, as, as technology continues to, um, you know, I, mean, I know I'm going to sound like an old man rant because I know these things can be really helpful. You can have people come to your backyard yeah. at a party and you can use technology like we're doing to connect with someone that otherwise would only really talk to once a year at AAR. The, the, I would have written you a letter with a quill. Aww. <laughs> uh, you know, th- that as we, as our times in a sense become less human, less humane, mm-hmm. uh, some kind of apocalypse would make it real. And, and you see that in The Walking Dead that people are forming friendships and alliances that they would not have had otherwise, that their lives would have been much more comfortable and longer now, but their lives would have had, they wouldn't have had the meaning. Like they're saving the city. Yeah. They're, they're doing things. And maybe that's the superhero bit too, is we want to be Superman. We want to save the city, but instead we're kind of, uh, we're just agents of, of, of larger forces that are paid for our time and professionalism yeah. And then we, we dream about perfect vacations. So then you have to work harder to save the money and we're always consumers. And yeah. then when you get too old, they don't care about you anymore because you're not a consumer producer. So I, I don't know. That's the kind of thing I wonder. It's like well, a, a need for meaning. And, and then the apocalyptic gives us meaning. You know, now is the day of salvation. That's such a powerful theme. And it fits in all sorts of things, just like, you know, diets. We're always wanting to say, I'm going to diet tomorrow. But if you're really serious, right. you got to start right now. You know, sort of now is the day we want the, we want this moment to be super important, but we live in a world where our moments really aren't important. Well, I would, my, I always joke, um, uh, this comes from, I forget where I heard this. It's, it's not my line, but I use it, um, with abandon. People always say, Oh, do you want to diet and join a gym? I said, no, I'm working on the before picture. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Ralph Wood back, not to t- dovetail this too neatly, but, uh, he actually had this line he used to say to students, 
I still say it occasionally when, you know, you see that person is just almost wrecking their life to live healthy. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're, they're almost like stressed to, to, to not touch that one thing yeah. that's going to give them cancer. They think, I mean, I had a, you know, somebody I knew that thought coffee was going to give them cancer, just straight coffee. He's like, well, I did some reading online. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> just, um, and, and I, I didn't make fun of the person. It was just like, so stressed about it. And Ralph Wood once said to a class of like, you know, 19 year olds, he said, yeah, most of the world is spending every waking hour trying to have 10 more years with a diaper between their legs. Oh my gosh. That's, yeah. And I just, wow. Ooh, like it was one of those, like, that's like, that's like a drop the mic, you know, yeah. just walk out of the classroom line. And I think that's Chesterton and, uh, you know, sort of this very carpe diem, which has a real place in Christianity. To, you should, you yeah. know, C.S. Lewis and, and Tolkien, if you read Tolkien, you think, why are they always wanting to smoke a pipe of tobacco? I should add, they're always wanting tobacco. And it's because of this real carpe diem of enjoying this life. Mm-hmm. Cause you know. Yeah. To my knowledge, you know, in, in the fantasy genre, others mimic it, but you could tell they're mimicking Tolkien. Yeah. But Tolkien is the first to elaborately describe all the food on the table. Really? He describes butter and the crusty bread. And I mean, just if you just actually notice those scenes, he just it, you get hungry almost mm-hmm. when you when you see them. Mm-hmm. He describes baths yeah, it, with yeah. this luxuriousness that makes you want to take a bath. <laughs> like and it's just like there's it feels it, it, actually when Lewis did a book review of he did it anonymously for the Times Literary uh, Supplement. I can't remember if it was for the Hobbit. I think it was for Fellowship. Um, but he had this great line. He said, everywhere you put down your foot, the, the dust of history curls up around your toes. Mm. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm probably getting the line wrong. But basically, you, everything feels right. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you mentioned sci-fi. It's interesting. I, it might be on Netflix, but I believe it was on the Science Channel. This is a number of years ago. What's his name? Who's the guy that directed Aliens? Ridley Scott. Yeah. Glad I could help. Uh, Ridley, Ridley Scott is the host of a, sh- a show. It was uh, it was either an hour long show. I think it was a f- four part series of hour long episodes that looked at the most influential sci fi writers, their themes and why they're important. Mm-hmm. And it's this really actually kind of, you know, avant garde sense to this, uh, the way they do the show. Ridley Scott's just sitting there drawing of all things. He's got this like he's apparently a good artist huh. uh, and he's drawing like these sci fi scenes. And then really Scott starts talking about Asimov, the guys who wrote uh, stories like iRobot, Stormtroopers. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of these names. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke. Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah. Richard Matheson. You ever read him? Yeah. But he's in there. Twilight Zone and stuff. But anyway. Um, but a lot of these are unfortunately synonymous with uh, movies that didn't quite make the jump from the book, uh, the, the quality of the book. So but they're they're phenomenal. But. It's interesting. You mentioned apocalyptic. That's one of the main things that Ridley Scott keeps hammering mm-hmm. on. It, it lets you know you're going to die. Yeah. And he talked to he talked about making aliens, which is a horror movie in space. Yes. It, it's designed to make very you little feel light. like it's all, all very often in darkness. Yes. Yeah, such a great. Movie. No, very little music, all this stuff. And of course, everyone remembers the alien popping out. But yeah. that's a climax of a very long, like slow buildup. Yeah. But anyway, he just talks about this idea that we need to feel like we're going to die mm-hmm. to feel like there's meaning. Yes, yeah. And it's it that he, it, from a literary tragic comedy sense, it was like, oh, that's really interesting mm-hmm. because these movies keep coming around. They keep going back to that well, even in comic book movies. It it's not. I mean, I've actually gone back and read some old comics. They're they're not as good because it's just like, oh, I'm gonna put on my suit now and <laughs> defeat this they're, bad guy in one good. in two panels. <laughs> And, uh, uh, whereas now, I mean, all the movies, all the latest books, it's like apocalyptic at every point. So they've taken on that sci-fi sense of if it's not impending doom, if Superman isn't going to die, you know, kind of thing. Right. And then we're all, you know, screwed after that. (laughs) Um, then, then this, this tale has no meaning, which is just very intriguing that that's the go-to move. Mm -hmm. But it does. It gives our lives meaning somehow. Uh, the other bit I think about with Walking Dead is it reminds me a lot of Survivor in that the question for me with The Walking Dead is how, how far would you go to survive? And so it does yeah. become kind of like Survivor, which I never, I don't know. I, I never got into the reality shows, except for the cooking, the Ramsey 
or Ramsey, because <laughs> I, I guess kitchens are always interesting to me and yelling at people. But otherwise, it's sort of like, will you eat these worms to stay on the island? Or, bloody mashed potatoes. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> and uh, uh, so Walking Dead's got a bit of that. If you see people that either just don't want to go on or or get unlucky, you know, like happens in Survivor when you get voted off, they decide they, they gang up on you and you're just the guy they picked on to, to gang up yeah. on to kick off. So it's a bit of that of how, how long can you survive in this world and what will you do? And, and we see Rick struggling with that. And it's also in that Cormac McCarthy book, uh, The Road and they made a movie of that is what that man will do to save his son in an apocalyptic wasteland. And, and it's a terrifying mm. book, but it'll, you know, you, you just find yourself weeping at it because it's just, it's just so beautiful, but also yeah. so terrifying. Um, so I think he won the Pulitzer, he won the Pulitzer for that. He did. Okay. Yeah, I think so. He won it around then. It may not have been for that book. I think it was though. But anyway, great book, Cormac McCarthy, No Country for Old Men, that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, b- because AER was in Atlanta and it was just a five hour drive, I drove and I listened to The Martian on audiobook. Oh, nice. And it's actually an interesting story, the book, because it started out as just a blog um, by a guy who's a a self-proclaimed science geek. And people basically clamored for it to be put on Amazon on an ebook, self-published. He did. I think he put it up there for like a dollar. He did. He just wasn't after fame and and going viral. It became a bestseller at one point. (laughs) So he went from guy writing a blog to like this big movie. The American Dream. But... Yeah, that's right. And but what's interesting is NASA has maybe not officially, but scientists and stuff have said basically this is on the one hand the playbook for how we are thinking about going to Mars Weird. in the future, and two, they called it the most accurate representation both in the book and the movie of the real science as to how you might survive on on the red planet. And of course, I won't give anything away, but that's that's everyone who's seen anything of the trailer or even just the yeah. the movie poster. You could tell dude got lost on Mars by him left by himself. And, but it, it's it, it's it doesn't have that poetic like urge to it. Um, a lot of what the book is trying to do is help us understand like how the how you would make water by, you know, boiling off something from a different chemical to to, to break up the atoms. Uh, he actually does it very well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, don't, I know squat about science right, uh, right. on that sense, on that side, but he made it very palatable. But it's that same thing. What, what, what you know, because he's faced at the beginning of the, of the story with, I have all that we, they had brought medical supplies. Mm-hmm. He could just jam a bunch of morphine into himself and, and, you know, just not even try. Mm-hmm. Or it's like multiple years of in, like harsh endurement of this horror story of being left alone with, you know, all types of problems. But the will to survive kind of thing mm-hmm. is built into it. We watched the movie over the Christmas break. They, they, they science it a lot less. I mean, they don't sure. stop to monologue about chemicals. Um, <laughs> but I wonder if the, the popularity of the movie is always this heroic. Like, it, it assumes that it's, it's not going very well. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's something broken. And it is that, that brokenness, the thing that the tragedy of it's not working actually gives the meaning of it. Right. Uh, it makes comedy more fun and joy more joyous because the assumption is not that we're just free consumers just enjoying life and then dying, but that there's this like urge to survive somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah. The, str- the, hum- the, the nobility of the human spirit, something like that. How, how, what yeah. are you willing to do kind of thing? Yeah, I, I think so. And so it kind of becomes rocky or it becomes uh, any sort of a comeback story or story of survival. Yeah. Uh, well, here's the question: What would you do if you in, at the Martian? Would you do morphine, or would you um, drink <laughs> your own urine? I haven't, I haven't yeah. read. I know I need to. I, I'd heard about the Martian book a year or two ago because it's up for the Hugo or one of those awards. Yeah, for yeah, yeah, the Hugo. Yeah. So um, I, I would recommend it on audiobook. The guy who does the narration does it really well. Cool. Um, and the book has legitimately laugh out loud like moments. It's actually legitimately funny. Uh, the guy, um, the main character. Mm-hmm. Matt Damon, um, Matt Damon is said to have been chosen for the, the journey because it was so long for his humor, for his way that he could like huh. laugh uh-huh. in the midst of it, which is actually an interesting point uh, for the way that the story works. So he's like, he, like there's some scenes where he's stuck in Mars and all he has is an iPad with crappy like 80 sitcoms <laughs> and like and he's just like <laughs> reflecting on it, like <laughs> and laughing about it. And like this, it's just like, but it worked. You're like. Why would you screw around on Mars when you might die? It's yeah. like, 
Because that's somehow what humans do. Yeah. Like there's some sense of, of laughter. We're not Vulcans, so. Yeah. Uh, what I would do is die very quickly because I know squat. I would probably walk outside into minus, uh, you know, 80 degree weather or whatever it was on Mars. Uh, I should know that. This probably something. It was well below zero, put it that mm-hmm. way. But let's say, okay, hypothetically, I have all the tools that he had. Yeah, I'd fight. Would you? Um, I mean, it's interesting in the book, uh, the main character doesn't, ha- he's not at least mentioned as having wife or kids. He just has, he refers to his parents. Wife and kids ups the factor. Sure. Like, well, I probably would have taken the journey. Um, my wife would have, you know, cut me if I would said, hey, I'm going to Mars for four years um, while the kids are young. But <laughs> how'd you take this with you? Stab. <laughs> oh, really? How about a ship? Um, <laughs> you could use it uh, on Mars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, I would. I think. Yeah, I think the the the, the will to survive. I, I, I certainly would have. Um, nothing in me would have been like, "Oh, that's it. I'm done." Mm-hmm. Like, kind of a forget this. But I, 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 if I go too much further, you start giving away plot lines as to like what resources you might have and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I want to be careful. But uh, yeah, the one thing in the movie though that I didn't get from the book that it's not at least commented on that I remember is you. They they do some CGI stuff and they have a, a body double. You see how much weight he's lost and like the just the horror that's it's done to his body to survive. Yeah. So you get more of this visceral, like, oh yeah, years of eating like a, like one protein bar a day to survive. Like that, that, that it would be the word. I mean, that is the concentration camp, but death by slow starvation yeah. would, would just be the worst thing. Yeah. Cause he looks like, he looks like he's on the verge of that level yeah. of gauntness when he's living. And he, of course it, you know, there's always the heroic ending and all this stuff, but yeah, I mean, yeah, that sense of, he paid for it that long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I would not want that. I would take the morphine if I knew that was going to happen. But the trick is you don't know at the time that that's, yeah. you know, you think, well, maybe, maybe he does, but, but generally in those sorts of things, or if you think of the Tom Hanks movie when he's on the Island, uh, yeah. uh, uh cast away with the volleyball. Oh, thing. that's, that's crazier. Cause I mean, yeah. Um, but you're kind of hoping and then maybe they're back tomorrow. You don't know. So you kind of keep waiting, hoping, hoping, uh, but yeah. meanwhile, you look back and like for six months, I've been eating a pineapple coconuts, which, yeah. gosh, talk about diarrhea. Can you imagine? <laughs> there was a side of the island he just never went to. It it's was like, like just covered in feces. Just the backside. <laughs> I don't know. He got some lobsters in there at the end. You know, yeah. he's like he's lobsters like, and coconuts. Oh, gosh. He's like bullseye, though. <laughs> he's like 500 yards away with like a handmade spear and he hits a. A lobster point blank. That is his Xbox, you know, <laughs> throwing spears. Like that's the only game he's got. That's his. That's his Call of Duty Seven. I gotta level up. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Though it's interesting, though. You, you said you'd take the morphine. It's. But you're right with the kids. I mean, that would change it. I'd really want yeah. to see the kids again. But. But six yeah. months of agony it sounds pretty bad. But I don't know. No, I've never does. had to face yeah. that. Thankfully, so I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and there's a little illusion. It doesn't give anything away, but um, obviously one of the issues is uh, a team has to come and rescue. Mm-hmm. And there's like a apocalyptic scenario that's mentioned where they drew straws and one person would have to resort to cannibalism to ah, yes. like make it all the way back. And you're just thinking, uh, that, that <laughs> then I'd take the morphine. I'm, yeah. I'm not eating no bro. That's like, right. <laughs> Especially when you know the guy. I mean... Like they've owned the ship together. It's not like an anonymous person. Yeah. And the great thing about the Martian is as soon as you open, like as soon as you get into like chapter three or four, uh, they're very short chapters. It's like, again, it's the, the book is the, the is designed to, to seem like he's blogging his experience on Mars. So it's like huh. up, update five. Okay. Like this has happened. This has happened. Of course it gets a little wordy as you go along. Mm-hmm. Um, like when he starts describing chemicals to us when he's already a scientist, but um, it's like, wouldn't you know that? Right. Right. That, you know, Wait, water is H2O. No, but, um, and in a story, what you'd have is you'd have the, the person that doesn't, he, he did have the sidekick. He'd say, well, why do you have to do that? And then he could explain yeah, yeah, it, but yeah. he doesn't have that. T- tell me more, Batman. Exactly. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Robin. They immediately, uh, the, the, uh, the, the book immediately draws you into the fact that he has a lot of resources. So the olive, uh, so the, so the carrot rather on the stick mm-hmm. is, is, oh, I could probably do this. Just do I, do I want to? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, yeah, it, it, it gets the right tone. Does he get a tooth infection like, um, Castaway? 
No. That, that was that's an that's enough for me to not watch Castaway again. I was so horrified at that scene. Of, well, as my wife says, anything with teeth, uh, toenails, or fingernails, like yeah. like having to pull them out, uh, like come on, yeah, like that's that's just playing with the audience, right? Um, that's just yeah, a bit much. It's sort of a Tarantino move, moment, which I really want to see the the dreadful eight, hateful eight, hateful eight, hateful yeah, eight, awesome eight. Uh, I, I like his movies, but I usually only want to watch them once, but. Yeah, for no, that, that is true. That is well, good. at this point, he has sort of become like a um, a mashup uh, historian. So I'm curious to see what like mm-hmm. like I mean, he, he now has World War One, World War Two, yeah, um, yeah. Civil War era, mm-hmm. and now post you know sort of Jim Crow era Deep South. I think it's Deep South. <laughs> this is like what's next? Yeah, he's the Middle Ages. And he said the samurai kind of with the Japanese. He did the samurai, yeah, which is medieval Japan. Wait, was it? No, because I was thinking of Kill Bill. I mean, it's echoing that culture, but... Oh, well, at least the culture, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's all, yeah, because it's a mashup, so it's, it's a mashup, taking... yeah. You're right. I never thought of him as really a historian. He is. What, what I love is that everyone in his movies seems like they're having a great time. Like, everybody's just, it's just like, everybody is, you know, it, it's like a pleasure. And, and he keeps getting the same people to come back. So it, it must yeah. just be awesome to work with him. Well, everyone says that they don't like it because he's, quote, not being historical enough. Like, I mean, it tries to blow up Hitler. And I think I can't oh, remember. It's a even, fiction. Th- yeah. Well, what they're doing is he, he in, a, in a strangely philosophical way, he knows the age old question is, would you blow up Hitler? Is it morally right, right to murder him and some other people then endure and, you know, have him be conquered by others? The classic, you know, kill switch mm-hmm. uh, ethics, ethics dilemma, which is a bit of a bit of a false one. Right, right. But like you take the Civil War one, Django Unchained, mm-hmm. like so there were some complaints that he's he's either he over portrays the evil of of that that uh, of slavery, which is a horrible argument to mm-hmm. make. <laughs> it's like, it, it wasn't that bad. Like, that's what it sounds right, like. Right. But but that that he made it, you know, kind of Emperor Palpatine. Mm-hmm. That's one complaint. The other is that that he doesn't understand the the, the slave plight uh, as well as he should. But the the point of the movie, I thought always was. He's riffing on our memory of the legacy, mm-hmm. what we wish would have happened. Guy gets a gun mm-hmm. and starts shooting everybody. And it's both our experiences and what we wish could would have happened at times in the, right. in the past. And it's, it's, it's a canvas. Yeah. And it's I, I actually like it. It's like at least you could tell Tarantino's in the movie mm-hmm. versus times where they make movies like uh, I thought a beautiful mind was ruined for this reason. Mm-hmm. It's like. Like, well, this is historically accurate, perfectly, exactly mm-hmm. how it happened. And then everyone, like, including the family, was like, not even close. Right, like, right. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And I, I haven't seen the Steve Jobs movie yet, but a similar complaint that it's a great movie, but it pretends to be accurate in a way, but it's not. Like, there's all sorts of inaccuracies. Yeah. So if you just fictionalize it, if you changed his name, everyone sort of knew it was kind of based on Steve Jobs, but you, you said a degree of removal, then it might yeah. actually be more accurate than pretending that it's a biography, but it's really not. Or the social network. Yeah, I mean, the social network. That's the other classic. Yeah. It's the only time I ever felt bad for Zuckerberg. It's yeah. like, Everyone now thinks he's that weenie. Right. That like, uh, it, yeah, he's probably not. He probably did some shady stuff along the way, but I don't know. I, I wasn't there. But this, yeah, the, the story makes it look like you see into the world. But that, that's that's the problem is I think too often our, fic- our fiction has to pretend to be nonfiction yeah. to be meaningful. And it can't just be fiction. That's good. That might be a good place to stop. It kind of brings it full circle. Fiction and nonfiction. Um, I do want to say a big thanks to Ralph Wood for his big impact on both our lives. Absolutely. So yeah. We need to probably, we could explore that more. But No, I think we will. Uh, Tolkien and Lewis stuff will probably pop up yeah. uh, along the yeah. way for sure. Great. Great.